0: Well, according to Reader's Digest, what a, a gal named Amy Harris saw in shallow water along the banks of Redfish Lake in Idaho wasn't a bolt like she suspected that it was kind of glimmering there. It was a gold wedding bandage. So she reached down, she picked it up, and then she posted her fine on Craigslist and Facebook, but nobody claimed the ring. And four months later, she had given up finding the owner. It's a last-ditch effort her husband Thought, oh I'll just call my old friend, Richard Black. He's a jeweler in the next town over. Advice he of, hey, what do we do with the ring? And and he asked, Did you find it in Redfish Lake? And the surprise couple found out that um Alan and Dana Schroeder, they'd recently stopped by Black's shop that same week to buy a replacement for the ring that he lost four months previous. The very same ring. Harris dropped off the band at Black's shop, and by Thanksgiving, they had the ring back. Um, something that was lost got found and these seemingly unrelated circumstances, seeming coincidence, you know, what are the odds that she would find a a, a, a ring in the lake to begin with? And beyond that, what are the odds that she would find it the same week that some people miles and miles away would go and visit a jewelry shop? What are the odds the jewelry shop owner would be friends with the husband of the woman who found it Sometimes lost things are oddly reunited with those who lost them. And its you got to wonder, that, that can't be pure accident, right? That can't be purely accidental. Sometimes lost things, things that were once lost are, are found, reunited with people who lost them, and it's not accidental. In the case of the account, we're going to read through. We're going to read a long passage of Scripture, so we're going to do something a little different. Normally we read all the Scripture up front. We're going to read the Scripture throughout and summarize a little bits of the passages as well. We're going to be reading from 1 Samuel 9 and 10. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel 9. And you can follow along with us in 1 Samuel 9. We're going to be going through 54, I think I counted that right, 54 verses, verse Samuel 9 and 10 both. So follow along together with us. We're going to read pieces of that. But in 1 Samuel, we're going to see that it kind of begins with this story after it introduces you to this guy named Saul. It it begins with this story of some lost donkeys. And you think, what's so spectacular about lost donkeys? Why are we having a sermon about lost donkeys? Who cares about lost donkeys? But these lost donkeys, they're eventually found. And in the process, though, God uses these ordinary events, these ordinary kind of happening of these lost donkeys to bring about some extraordinary work. God uses this, this ordinary kind of happenstance of something lost to find the man that he had planned. We're going to go through 1 Samuel 9 and 10. The very beginning of 1 Samuel in verses 1 and 2, it begins and it says, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekoroth, son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. If you remember, at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people had asked God for a king like all the other nations. It wasn't a problem that they wanted a king, but the problem was they wanted a king like the other nations had. They wanted a king to replace God who was their king. And God says, because you're wanting your own kind of king, because you're wanting to choose a king, you've rejected me from being king, and so I'm going to judge you by giving you the kind of king you want. Sometimes it's not good to get... What you pray for. Sometimes it's not good to get what we want because it's not the best for us. And yet sometimes God turns us over to the desires of our heart. And so that's what we saw at the end of chapter eight. He, he turned them over to a sinful desire. And, but in chapter nine here you see that God's doing a few things. He's both bringing some judgment, but you also see he's doing some other things at the same time. And so it tells us this story of Saul and he was a likely candidate in a lot of ways you know the other nations they they chose their kings based on who was the strongest who could best all the other leaders of the clans in a fight and so Saul seemed like a pretty likely candidate scripture doesn't often talk about how handsome guys are and I'm kind of glad for that I'm a little weirded out whenever you're thinking about. Oh, he's a handsome guy, but he says it twice, really emphatically. He was a handsome guy. In fact, he was so handsome he was better looking than any other guy in all of Israel. He, he was, you know, that you get the point that he was impressive. But not only was he, you know, was he gorgeous as a man, if a man can be gorgeous? um, He, he was a head and shoulders taller than any other man in Israel too. So he was just a stud. He was he was the kind of king you would look for. He was the kind of king that any nation would think, that's our guy. And later on, we'll see there's a big contrast between that kind of choosing, looking on the exterior, and the kind of choosing that God does, which is something different altogether. So this mighty man's son, Kish was a mighty man and he was, he was wealthy. So he came from a good family. He came from a prominent family. Even though it was a obscure tribe. Way back in Judges, they had a little civil war and the tribe of Benjamin was almost completely wiped out. But, um, but this was a prominent guy in this obscure tribe and his son was good looking. He was impressive. He impressed men and women alike. You know, if he was running for president, he would just make it on his good looks. And he looked like he might be a king like all the other nations. That's not necessarily a good thing. But we're seeing at the same time, God is both giving them the kind of king they want, but... He's also giving mercy in the midst of it. And we'll cover that a little bit later on. But we're going to see four scenes in these two chapters. Four scenes in these two chapters that show God's way of directing events to bring about His purposes. God's way of directing events to bring about His purposes. And the first scene that we're going to see in verses 3 to 14 is that we see an ordinary search. We see an ordinary search. There's, there's nothing spectacular about the first few nine verses from three to fourteen, you know, Saul's father Kish. He was he was wealthy. He owned a lot of donkeys, apparently. And these donkeys somehow got loose. I can just imagine. You know, he wakes up in the morning and he finds these donkeys are loose. He says, "Hey, Saul, get up! The donkeys are loose. Go and get your servant and go 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 get them." And this was probably something that was fairly commonplace. You know, but the donkeys back then they would have been very valuable. They used them to plow. They used them to carry grain. They used them to grind grain. Um, they were kind of like the international harvester of, the, of their day they were the all around farm tractor you could hook up a lot of attachments to them they were pretty valuable and so it was just ordinary that you want your donkeys back when the donkeys got loose and and I'm guessing that Kish wasn't thinking you know saw something supernatural is going on the donkeys got out you know last time my friend's dog got loose I'm not thinking there oh god are you leading us through this dog loose you know go go find the dog, son, and maybe you'll become king. I mean, that just doesn't happen. But donkeys where they were valuable, it's just common sense to go get them, so he sends them off to be with like one of the servants, and they don't know if it's going to take a couple hours or a couple days or how long it might take. You know if you're going to compare donkeys in that day to be like a skilled carpenter today getting his truck stolen with all of his saws and power tools and drills in it, and he'd want it back. And so they go and they, it talks about they go all throughout the area and they go through like this 15 square mile area. It's a big area they cover and they're on foot and they're searching everywhere. It's got to be pretty mundane. You know, they go up to every farm they see and they say, hey, have you seen a bunch of donkeys wandering around? They're like, no, what are you talking about? And so they go from place to place looking for donkeys. This is not like some glorious search. And they don't find the donkeys. So it's not even a successful search. It's an ordinary search. So it takes him about three days, and and Saul, if you look down your Bibles, he begins to worry. And he says, you know what, we've been away for so long that um, my dad is going to wonder, like, um, what happened to my son? And stop worrying about the donkeys. Now now the son's been gone for three days. And so he begins to, to think, maybe we should head back. But the servant, it's not Saul's idea, but the servant had heard of Samuel. Now, Saul probably should have heard of Samuel and thought of it, but he was a little clueless. And, and so his servant hears, thinks of it and he goes, you know what, There's this, this prophet lives nearby and maybe this prophet of God could tell us where the donkeys were. And so he says to Saul, look down at verse 6, he says, but he said to him, Behold, there's a man of God in this city and he's a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Um Saul knew though that, that you can't just go to a prophet and ask a favor of him, wouldn't be really polite if you don't have like any kind of gift for them. You know, so at least he wanted to bring like a plate of cookies or some bread or something, he didn't have anything there, so he's like, but we don't have anything to bring him. And so the servant just happened to have a quarter of a shekel of silver, and he offered, he said, You know what, I got this, you know what, I've got a quarter shekel of silver here. Maybe I can give it to the man of God. And, and, and Saul says, okay, that's a great idea. And so then in verses 10 to 13, if you look down your Bibles, they, we see that they, they go into the city and some other ordinary things happen. They're going into the city and so they see these young women coming out to get water in the well that was right outside the city. It's nothing supernatural about that, seemingly at least. And they come and they encounter these young women as just as they're coming out and they say, hey, have you seen the seer? Do you know who he is? Now maybe Saul should have known who he is. Samuel's been judging for about 20 years and he used to visit every city. But anyway, they don't know who he is. And so they say, have you seen this seer?" And they're like, oh yeah, by the way, he's right there. He's about to come out the gate. If you go in now, you'll find him because he's about to go up and sacrifice. And they won't sacrifice without him. So if you go right now, you're going to catch him. And so they just happen to know Samuel's exact whereabouts and that they run into him. What Saul and what his servant didn't know is that God had divinely orchestrated the lost donkeys. That he had directed the path. As they looked all over the countryside randomly, he made them look for three days and that timing was perfect. It was so perfect that at just the right moment they're coming into the city as Samuel's coming out. So they'll meet him just when he's going up to sacrifice. And then, by the way, we, we find that God had given his servant the idea to go to the prophet and then see these women and they tell him where it is. And God uses these ordinary, mundane, everyday things of life like lost donkeys and a search that didn't end well to get his people to the right place at the right time. You know that happens all the time, doesn't it? In this story, we're going to find out what God is doing and that God uses ordinary things to reveal the king that the people asked for. If you remember at the the end of chapter 8, we know that a king is coming and you're kind of waiting. What kind of king will this be? They want a king like the nations, but what will God do? We see that God uses ordinary events to bring a king that he would ordain. And so that we see a second scene in, in chapter 9, 15 through ten, one. We see that the day before Saul came, and we, we know that the timing was perfect. This is when the light begins to dawn. You say, okay, this isn't just ordinary camp, donkeys getting lost. This isn't just a search. This isn't just he happens to suggest that they go to Samuel. He happens to have a shekel. They happen to meet the women. They happen to go in the right time. They happen to meet him at the gate. We know that because the day before, God knew all that would happen. And he says, hey, about this time, about this exact time, a guy is going to come to you. And so look down at verse 16. He says, tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man. A man, And he tells him where? He says, from the land of Benjamin. He says, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people, Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. And when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Oh, so all of these delays in life, all of these kind of bummer circumstances, all of this unsuccessful searching, all of these kind of happenstance meetings, they weren't happenstance at all. And that helps us as we're thinking about our own life, that sometimes we can think of our life and we think, you know, sometimes we have we, we lose things in life. Sometimes we have things happen that we don't plan for, that we don't expect, that we don't like. Sometimes things just kind of events occur, and you really can't see that anything good is going to come of it. And yet passages like this can help us see and have faith that, you know what, God is able to work You know, lost dogs and lost donkeys, lost car keys, bad attitudes. That's what happens when I lose my keys, at least. He's able to to work kind of chance meetings. He's able to work timing, a lack of funds. He's able to work all these things to bring about his purpose and his plan in the life of his people. So when Saul, though, he, he approaches Samuel, and, and he already knew that he was going to anoint him as prince over Israel, is what he told him. And, and I was thinking about that, and I remember something that was just kind of ordinary happenstance in my own life. Back in, in January 25th of, of 1993, very vividly, I remember the, the exact place where I was. I can still kind of rewind the scene as I'm driving in my car, getting ready to come into work. And... Um, I used to always, it was January, and I lived in northern Virginia at the time, and January, towards the end of January, it's a little yucky up there typically, you know, it's a little icy and dreary and cold, and the wind's blowing, where I worked was right by the Potomac, and so you get a lot of moist air blowing, and it's cold and nasty, so I would scam and get VIP parking, and so... (laughs) Um, most mornings in in January and February I'd go to the front entrance and I'd ask my friends in security and they'd give me a VIP parking pass and I I'd, I'd scam and I'd park right in front of the building where, you know, senators and congressmen and this um, little, you know, hourly worker was parked too. So, um so I I park there and I would scam it. It was it's pretty much routine most days. In the wintertime, because, you know, you, otherwise you'd park like a mile away, literally, and then you'd have to walk, and it was just blistering cold, and, and so, but that morning, I was just getting ready to do that, and going into, the, towards the front entrance, and I thought, you know what? No, I'll just, you know, I'll just, I, I, no, I'll just, I'll just go in the back door, I'll just walk. I feel like a good walk this morning. Which would have been uncharacteristic of me, to walk in the cold, damp air, and so, I just thought, you know, I'll, Nah, I won't do that this morning. And I pulled in the side entrance, and as soon as I went through the side entrance, a few seconds later, maybe half a minute or so, um, all of a sudden these security guards start listening to the little walkie-talkies that they kind of mount on their shoulders, and then they start talking, and then they start running. I used to work in security in the, in the kind of the, a duty office, and um, I was wondering what in the world's going on. So I get to my desk and a few of my coworkers had gone out to the front gate and it turns out that the same moment that I would have been pulling up and instead of pulling in the side entrance, I would have gone around and sat at that light, a 30 second difference. I would have been sitting at that light where, um, a guy got out and he shot five people in a row. And I just, it did, that moment just kind of stuck in my head of oh my goodness that was not an ordinary prompting that wasn't just oh I think I'll just walk today that was God intervening in a way but I didn't know it beforehand I thought nah I don't feel like getting a VIP pass which would have been weird right and and so but I remember thinking oh my gosh it takes me not even 30 seconds to round the corner and I'd park in that line and um, the reason why he only shot five cars is because there were only five cars in the lineup. And he said he would have kept shooting if there were more cars when they interviewed him a few years later after they'd caught him. Two guys died, three were critically wounded and still suffer from that. And, and There's so many kinds of, of circumstances in our life that we think are coincidence that we're just unaware that God is working in promptings, little things, little desires He gives us or desires not to do things, little timing of lights and where you go. Most of the time, and I would say the majority of my life, I'm unaware of how God's working. And it's only when it's really blatantly obvious that I'm thinking, okay, that's God. You know, it's, it's not commonplace that we're aware, but He gives us those little insights so that we know that he is generally he is generally doing that all the time all the time god 's at work he was at work in saul 's life he was at work in his people 's lives in those women who were coming out we don 't even know their names he was at work in their lives he was at work in donkeys he was at work to work all the ordinary to bring about his revelation and so what what can look like? Mere coincidence was no coincidence at all. You know, I thought about, I think about the rest of my life, many times and turning points when I decide things, it just seems like, you know, I just, just happened to do that. And or I just happened to have a friend who had a friend who had a connection, and then God did things through them that had I not been in the middle, that that would never have happened. I thought, wow, God just orchestrated those things. And you can probably look back and see those similar kind of chains in your life, but you normally don't see them in advance. But you can look back and see... Oh, you know what? At this pivotal time in my life, that happened. If that had not happened, then, then that wouldn't have happened, and that wouldn't have happened, and oh my goodness, God brought me here, and I never could have planned it. But he does that to to reveal his king. God moves circumstances and events, and he gave desires, just like God continues to work all kinds of circumstances and desires. In Proverbs 16, 9, it says that a man... A man's heart plans his ways. A man's heart plans his ways, right? So you think, this comes from me, this comes from my desires. My desires, I'm going to plan out my ways. The second half says, but the Lord directs his paths. Maybe you are thinking this morning that you are just unsure. God, are you really in this, Lord? Will you really be faithful, God? Will you really help me through these circumstances? Maybe you're facing... Uh, situation in your life where maybe maybe you're getting close to retirement or maybe you just started college or maybe you just started high school or maybe you have other things happening in your life right now and you're wondering, God, are you really in control? And passages like this and like Proverbs meant to show us that God, if you have placed your faith, God is directing your path. You can trust in him. In fact, Isaiah 46, 9, he says, for I am God. There's no other. Don't think you're God. I'm God. There's one. There's no other. He says, I'm God. There's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel will stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. So from ancient times, he declares things in the past that are not yet come about. And he says his counsel will stand and he'll accomplish his purpose. And he gives an example in verse 11 of Isaiah 46. He says, calling a bird of prey from the east. The man of my counsel from a far country. So men and birds. God uses to accomplish his will. He says, I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I've purposed. I will do it. Maybe you're wondering who's in control. Maybe you're wondering if people are bigger than what you can see of God right now. Maybe you feel like your circumstances, your finances are too big for God. Maybe you feel like this relational difficulty you're having or this challenge you're facing. Maybe you feel like this, even though you might know differently in your head, but maybe you're feeling like this is too much, God. Can you really, are you really going to direct? And Yet things like this show us that God uses ordinary things... For his purposes, and then sometimes it's to reveal his king. Now, God was revealing his king Saul in this situation, but I think that God sometimes uses those times when we just can't see what's going on to reveal, to get us to look up and see the king. Maybe Moses, he was going after a sheep story of Moses, you know, he goes off in the wilderness for 40 years. God's working in his life. We don't know what he's doing, but God was maturing Moses. And, and And he goes off after a lost sheep. And that was the ordinary circumstance that God used to get him to go over and see that, oh, there's a burning bush over here. God uses ordinary circumstances to reveal himself. Sometimes he uses problematic circumstances to reveal himself. Well, if you'll notice in the account, God doesn't call Saul king over Israel. He says Samuel would anoint him to be prince. And a prince is somebody who is underneath a king. And it implies that although God is going to use Saul as part of judgment to give them the kind of king that they want, not the kind of king is best, but God is still going to make sure that he's a king who is really under God and under his authority. And so he makes sure that Samuel knows, I'm... I'm gonna have you anoint him a prince. He doesn't ever use the word king. I'm gonna make him a prince. He's gonna govern the people. Actually, the only place that the word king is used is the very end when the people all say, you know, all hail the king! The people wanted a king of their own in and, and judgment. God was giving them over to the desire, but even in judgment, and you need to see this in this passage, even in judgment, even though they were sinning and they were reaping the consequences of their sin, God was still showing mercy to them. He says, I've heard their cry. And he says, he's going to use Saul to save the people from the hand of the Philistines. Even though this was a man that the people would have chosen, that God chose really beforehand to work through their sinful rejection of God. To bring about his purpose, to show his people mercy, and to save the Philistines through a bad king. God's going to do His work, He's going to continue. And that's good news for us. Even at times when we have gone astray, when we've gone after our own desires and not God's desires, we can trust that God is still a merciful God. And He's merciful here. There's no reason for Him to be merciful. He warned them about judgment and He says, I'm going to do that. But yet He's still merciful. He says, I hear the cry and I'm going to use Saul to save the people from the hand of the Philistines. And in judgment, he gave the people what he wanted, but in mercy, he used what they wanted to deliver his people. You know, in Romans, we often quote that, you know, God works all things together for the good. Sometimes that good doesn't feel so good. They're going to not feel so good later on in the next few chapters. They're going to realize their mistake of getting the king that they wanted. But even in the midst of that, God is merciful, still working bad things, bad circumstances, for their ultimate good, to reveal their need for a king that God would choose. So, it tells us that's what God does. You know, God shows mercy, he gives grace. So when Saul came to Samuel, Samuel knew exactly who he was. And so Saul asks, he says, you know, where's the seer? Where's the prophet? gives you insight that Saul's not too clued into who's leading Israel right now. Samuel says, it's me, I'm the seer. Hey, by the way, let's go on up. I got this like big feast planned. I'm gonna sacrifice. Come on up with me. I'm gonna, you're gonna be my guest at a meal. And so it probably took him a little off guard. And he goes up before him to the high place where the sacrifice to be made. And he was gonna eat with him. And then he says, in the morning, I'm gonna tell you everything that's on your mind. He says, go up with me. I already know who you are. By the way, you're gonna go up, you're gonna eat with me. In the morning, I'm gonna tell you everything that's on your mind. And then he says, and by the way, Um, your father's donkeys, they've been found. So come on, let's go eat. And Saul's got to be wondering what in the world's going on. And he probably thought it was a little crazy. You know, when when he found out about the lost donkeys, Saul probably thought, well, if they're already back then I'll just go home, man. See you later. But so that he would stay, Samuel told him something else that would have intrigued Saul and made him want to find out what was going on and Look down at verse 20. It says, And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? You know, it kind of has double meaning there. It's both all of Israel is desiring a king. Saul knows that. And he's basically saying all of Israel is desiring a king. And, and that's for you. At the same time, it also is saying everything you're desiring, that anybody would want to desire the kingship and all that goes with it, that's for you. So Saul thinks I'll stay, and he goes up with with, with Samuel, and Samuel takes them into the hall, and he he gives them a place at the head of all those people who've been invited, and he he had saved this big portion of meat, and that was like kind of a ceremonial thing they would give to the the dignitary or the the royalty or the nobility. They give them the biggest shank. So they have this big old leg of meat, and I can just remember those old movies where the kings kind of gnawing on this big piece of meat, and that's kind of what he does. He sets down, and he says, see, I've given you the, like, the kingly portion, and he sets it down in front of him. And he says, it was kept for you to the hour that was appointed, in verse 24, it says, so Saul ate with Samuel that day. And he accepts the honor, and then they come down, and, they, and then he says, you know what, stay overnight, and then I'll tell you everything you want to know in the morning. And, and Saul's got to be thinking, what is going on here? And he goes up on the roof, he goes to sleep, but just the right time, in verse 26, you know, at the break of dawn, I thought about when my dad used to get up for work. I was always annoyed if he got me up at the break of dawn, but he would do that often. But at the break of dawn, Samuel calls out to Saul up on the roof, "Up, that I may send you on your way. And there was a reason, there was some timing behind this. We're going to find out that God's still working. So Saul gets up, they go out in the street and he says, you know, hey, wait a minute, Um, tell your servant to go on ahead of us and I'm going to tell you what's really going on in verse, I think it's verse 27. And we see that Samuel is about to make known the word of God. So we see this third scene being set up for us. It's a series of signs with unfilled or unfulfilled instructions. He gives him a series of signs, and he gives him a couple instructions. The signs come to pass, but he doesn't follow instructions. He gives him a series of signs with unfulfilled instructions. And as soon as Saul had done this, Samuel got got all prophetic. He tells him what's going to happen. So he gets all prophetic. He breaks out a flask of oil, and he kind of dumps it on his head, and he kisses him. Back in that day, that was a a sign of, of respect and honor. In our day, that might come off a little odd. But Saul would have wondered, how in the world can I believe this guy that, wait a minute, I'm gonna, I'm gonna become the king? I'm gonna be the prince? I'm gonna be governing Israel? What in the world? I'm this, I'm from this obscure tribe, Benjamin? Don't you know? You know, didn't you read Genesis? Where it says that Judah will reign? And so he wonders, how am I gonna believe? And then Saul, he gives Saul this detailed prophecy about what would happen. So there'd be no way that Saul would doubt it. What's he doing? He's assuring his people. God gives assurance to his people in the midst of promises. He continues to assure his people that he's going to do what he said he's going to do. And then there's a curious thing. He gives it to him privately so Saul can be confident it's going to come about before it becomes public. And look down in verse 1, it says, the second half of verse 1, it says, When you depart from me today, you will meet... This is pretty specific, by the way. When you depart from me today, it says, You're going to meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they're going to say to you, so you're going to meet two men by a tomb in Zelzah. And by the way, they're going to say to you this, quote, The donkeys that you want to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you saying, What shall I do about my son? And you're like, Okay, sure. What are the chances of that? Maybe I could get one thing, right? Maybe I'll get two men. Maybe they'll ask about donkeys. Okay. But then in verse 3, we see a second sign that was from God. And verse 3 says, Then you shall go on from there further and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men... Okay, so two men first near a tomb. They're going to say, "Hey, by the way, your dad's donkeys are back. They miss you." Um, Now three men come up, and this is really kind of odd. One man is carrying three kid goats, and I can't really picture that very well. I don't know if he's got like one slung over his shoulder, one there, and one here, or if he's like got them in a wheelbarrow, if they had them back in that day. But one's got three kid goats. One's got two loaves, uh, three loaves of bread, and then one's got this uh, thing of wine, basically a skin of wine. And he says, you're going, to, you're going to see these three men, by the way, and the guy with the three loaves, he's going to give you two loaves and you're going to accept them. And then you're going to go on your way. So that was the second sign. The third sign we see is in verse 5. He says, after that, you're going to go to the city and there's going to be a garrison, a garrison of the Philistines there in, in Gibeath Elohim. And as soon as you come into the city, so think about why did he get him up at the break of dawn so that all these things would happen at just the right time. You know, who in the world could orchestrate those events? I worked for the U.S. government and we would try to orchestrate events. We did a pretty bad job of it. But there's no way you could orchestrate all the exact timing of this across many cities without any kind of communication system at the time. There wasn't runners going ahead. And he says, you're going to meet a group of prophets and they're going to be coming down a hill. And by the way, they're going to have a harp, a tambourine, a flute, and a lyre. They're going to have specific musical instruments. And they're going to be prophesying. And by the way, this third sign, now you're going to see this group of weird guys coming down the mountains with, with instruments. And is right outside this garrison of the Philistines. This is going to become important in a moment. Um, but the Spirit of the Lord is going to rush upon you. That's the same kind of language that was used in the judges when, when the Spirit of the Lord would rush upon the judges. And they would do mighty works, mighty deeds. He says, and then you'll prophesy. Saul's not a prophet. He says, then you will prophesy. And you'll be turned into another man. It'll be like you're somebody totally different. You know, if you were wanting specific confirmation from God that you had heard from him, you couldn't get more specific than this. God wasn't leaving anything to chance. and Nothing could be attributed to mere coincidence. And he was trying to draw an exclamation point for Saul and said, Look, you can trust me. Look, I know what's going on. I know the past from the future. And then he gave it to the people of Israel in his word. And he's given it to us so we can say, Look, you can trust me. I know the past and the future. I have orchestrated all the events from Genesis through to Revelation. In Genesis, I knew that I would bring about a son. And and then I brought about Jesus at just the right time. And by the way, I'm going to make everything happen at just the right time. You can trust me. And so Saul, he goes in these cities and then he does these things and he meets the prophets and, and they say, you know, oh, by the way, Saul, as soon as you see them, the this, this spirit's going to go in you, you're going to become a new man. But then notice in verse 7 and 8, he gives him two instructions about what he's supposed to do. So he's got three signs, and he's going to have two instructions. He says, now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do. For God is with you. That's some very specific language, again, that you would have seen in Judges. The Spirit of the Lord rushing on you, and God is with you. And he says, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming to you to offer burnt offerings, sacrifice, and peace offerings. You're going to have to wait seven days till I come to you and show you what you need to do. But there's something strange in these verses that you you might notice, Saul got these three signs that perfectly came to pass and those were so that he would respond in faith in obedience. But he didn't. He didn't. The first instruction was right after the Spirit rushed on him mightily. Now remember the position of this, right outside the garrison of the Philistines. Why is that important? when God's Spirit rushed on the judges, Samson, God's Spirit rushed on Samson, and he picks up this jawbone of a donkey, and he slays the Philistines. It's the same language. And by the way, in Judges 9.33, it's the same military kind of language, and it says, do what your hand finds to do. Meaning, whoever you encounter, kick butt. It's another way of saying that. And today's, Vernacular. I hope I didn't offend anybody, but whatever you encounter, do what your hand finds to you do. You're going to be right outside the garrison the Philistines, and you're going to have the mighty Spirit of the Lord rush upon you. And by the way, God is with you. So do whatever you find to do. But he doesn't. What does he do? It says when he finished prophesying, he came to the high place. And in the high place where he went was likely his home. And, and we know that because... The very next thing is he goes to the high place and then he, look in verse 14, he meets his uncle and his aunt, uncle asks him, where have you been? And so we see this fourth scene, this fourth and final scene. It's this this crowning of a hesitant king. This crowning of a hesitant king. Saul says, I went to look for the donkeys. But I couldn't find them, so we went to Samuel. And But you, you would think that, Saul would say, and by the way, oh my gosh. He told me, everything that would happen and all these three signs came took place and and he anointed me and then he proved it and i didn't tell anybody but i gotta tell you because i'm gonna be the next king unk, whatever he called him you know but he doesn't that's a little weird so maybe think oh maybe Saul's trying to be humble i don't think so that doesn't seem to be called Saul's character later on i think he was tentative he was hesitant He wasn't responding in faith. Why did God give him specific things, specific signs? Because God wanted him to have faith in him. Why does God give us his word? Why does God give us pictures of Old Testament prophecy? And why does he give us the fulfillment in the New Testament? So that we would have faith and respond to him in faith. But he doesn't. Look down in in verses 17 to 19 of chapter 10. God tells him through Samuel that... He's about to give them the king they wanted, the kind of king, and doing so, the Lord had Samuel give the people one last warning. He says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, from the hand of the kingdoms that were oppressing you. What's he saying? He says, I was the one who brought you out. I'm your deliverer. I'm your God. I'm your king. I did this. I'm the one who frees you from the oppressor. He reminds them when they're tempted to go astray. And I think he wants to remind us, I'm your God, he's saying. He wants to say that I'm the one who delivers you. I'm the one who frees you from your oppressor. He, even in the midst of judgment, he gives them a chance after chance. Just as he's about to appoint the king, he gives him another chance. Verse 19, he says, But today you've rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you've said to him, set a king over us. Meaning, God, you're not not our king. You're not good enough for us. You don't really deliver us from calamity and distress. And boy, that's to serve as a warning for us. May we not say to God, God, you're not good enough for me. God, you... You, you don't really deliver. I'm going to turn to other things and trying to figure things out on my own in ways I can figure out because God, I, I know better. God reminds them. He sets them free that he fights their battles. And, you know, oddly enough, we don't, we don't see that Saul, he doesn't go to Gilgal. He doesn't wait for Samuel. He doesn't do what he's supposed to do. So at the very beginning, very beginning, they're getting the kind of king that they really should not want. They're getting a hesitant king. That's not the kind of king that Israel needs. That's not the kind of king that people need. You know, when we look to earthly things or earthly people, to, when we look to relationships to satisfy, to to riches to satisfy, to circumstances to make us feel good about ourselves, when we look to those earthly kings, it's not going to get us what we want and what we really need. Verses 20 and 21 tell us, then even Samuel, he he knew exactly who he was supposed to choose. You see, Samuel knew ahead of time he was supposed to choose Saul, but what does he do? God sets this up ahead of time. And he, he wants to show the people that he's going to make what looks like the lottery, the random lottery, he's going to make it turn out the way he wants. And so he, he makes the choice of the king appear to be a random lottery where everybody has equal and fair chance, right? Think about that when you think about any votes and elections and things like that. Um, God, God knows what he's doing. So we pray and we trust him. And so the people, they're all sorted by the twelve tribes of Israel. And it says through lots, the tribe of Benjamin is taken. And then through lots, the, the specific family was taken. And then through lots, Kish's family was taken. And then through lots, Saul was taken. But if you... Think about for a moment, if you were a careful reader of the Old Testament, which they were supposed to be, they were supposed to teach their kids the first five books. The, the, what they would have had the writings prior to this. They would have had the writings of, of Moses. And they would have would have had the writings that talked about in Genesis 49.10. It says, the scepter, before they ever had a king, God made provisions and he told them where the king would come from, where the king needed to come from, where God's kind of king would come from. And he says, the scepter will not depart from Judah. Nor the ruler staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. They should have known that something was off. But God, you see, was bringing them their kind of king to show them that they needed his king. Sometimes God does that for us. He disciplines us for our good. So that we see we need his kind of king. Maybe you're experiencing discipline. Maybe you're experiencing correction. Maybe you're experiencing hard times. It says he he doesn't discipline those who are not his children. Everyone he disciplines are are his his children, his sons and daughters. And, And he rebukes those he loves and it's for their good. And he's doing this. This discipline we're seeing here is for their good. But it should have made them at least wonder, wait a minute, is this really the king we're looking for? He's coming from Benjamin. Hmm. I thought I read that God's Word said that it should come from Judah. But they didn't seem to bat an eye, and so Benjamin drew lots, and the clan of Matrites does, and then it says Kish's family is randomly chosen, and Saul was randomly chosen by lots, and then something that's almost, almost comical, but it's really embarrassing, I choose Saul, and they're like, what, where'd he go? And it's kind of hard to lose a guy who's that good-looking and is a head and shoulders above everybody else, right? He stands out in the crowd. You know, it's like if Doug Young were to stand up and we're all sitting down, I think you might notice him. Um, you know, they're like, "Hey, we chose Saul. Where? Saul? What? Where'd he go?" And so they're looking around for him. And in uh, verse 21 says, "When they sought him, he couldn't be found." Hey, where's that really tall, amazingly good looking guy? Anybody see that guy? And so, so they had to, they had to go and ask God, God, where's this guy, you you know, that, that we've, we've picked here, that through lots, is, is, is he, has he not arrived yet? Is he still to come? Like, we thought he showed up, but is he not here yet? And then God has to reveal to him where their king is. And he says in verse 22, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. (laughs) He says, then they ran and they took him from there. He wasn't an eager to serve. He wasn't eager to do what God told him to do. He wasn't filled with faith. He looked really impressive on the outside, but he was a wimp. He should have been filled with so much faith. Samuel told him the exact circumstances that would happen that are mind-blowing. And let me tell you, if any of you had anybody tell you, hey, by the way, you're going to go to this city, and you're going to see two people they are going to say this, quote, and then you're going to go to a next city, and you're going to see three people, and they're going to be there in three things, two things, and then one thing, and the guy with, okay, oh, sorry, three things, three things of, of uh, bread, and the guy with three things of bread is going to give you two pieces, and then you're going to go and you're going to more people who are going to have these instruments with them. If you had all those specific details, wouldn't you think you'd have a little bit of faith? And yet he he doesn't. He doesn't have faith. He doesn't respond. This is not humility. This is fear. And, and, And that kind of response to God, it says, without faith it's impossible to please God. We as His people are to look and see what God has done and what God has done time after time after time after time all throughout history, all throughout the Old and New Testament. And then we can look back and see all those little chains of event in their own life and in the lives of people around us. We can see that, wait a minute, God really can be trusted and I can respond to him in faith because of who he is and his proven character and what he's done, even if I don't see it and don't understand. And so this impressive man wasn't so impressive that should have caused some red flags. Hey, where's our fearless leader? Oh, he's hiding in the bags. He was outwardly impressive, but inwardly fearful. And they took him and they got him and it mentioned again just how tall he was and it mentions again his outward appearance and that's a bad sign when all you got is your looks and your height. It doesn't say anything about his character. In verse 24 and 25, he presents him to the people and he says, do you see who the Lord has chosen? there's none like him among all the people and all the people shouted long live the king and then samuel tells all the people the rights and duties of the kingship and then he writes him in a book and he lays it up before the lord and samuel sends all the people away each person in his own home they didn't hear any character qualifications they didn't hear about what a great leader he was going to be they just saw him and they saw that boy he won the lottery and he's really good looking and he's really tall He's an Abercrombie model and oh boy, we think he could, he could, he could be the guy. And so, Samuel then tells them all the rights and duties of the king and that makes us remember, we talked about a few weeks ago, Deuteronomy 17. The king, it tells us there, wasn't, wasn't supposed to go after a bunch of women or riches. He was supposed to be a man of God's word. Uh oh, well, that's already a problem because Saul, had God's word given to him, and he didn't trust God's word, the very beginning. Boy, that's that's a lesson for us. We're going to get to that in a moment. And he says that the king is supposed to make a copy of the law for himself, and that, so Samuel writes all this down, and that probably means that he wrote down the book of the law as well, and he puts it up and he lays it before the Lord, likely before the Ark of the Covenant. Why? So that God would figuratively serve as testimony to show that that God God was the one that that Saul was covenanting with. And if the king didn't keep the rights and duties of the king, he would answer to God. And then Samuel sends everybody home, and we're left with this kind of cliffhanger at the end of chapter 10. And, and then it says this really strange thing. It says that some worthless men, so a bunch of men that God inspired to go with him and support him, God was still showing Saul mercy by giving people to support him. Why? So that he could use Saul later to deliver to Philistines. And he does But then again, at the end of his life, the Philistines take back over again. he says something strange. He says, these worthless men, and it's a phrase that was used earlier of Eli's sons because they didn't know God. So these worthless men, these people who don't know God, they opposed the king. And you have to think for a minute, why would they oppose the king? He was this good-looking big guy, and it was obvious that he was the chosen one. I think it was because Samuel told him, what kind of king he was supposed to be it says that samuel told the people all the rights and duties of the kingship he would have told them what kind of king it was a king that submitted to god and so they say well how can a man how can a king like that save us how can a king how can this man if he's going to be that kind of king how can he save us we need a king like all the nations and so they despised him and they brought him no present and they they held he it says he held us peace and so we're left again. I mean, man, the writer of Samuel does this so many times at the end of a chapter. It kind of leaves with these cliffhangers. And it's meant to get us to think. That's that's what narrative like this is. It's good narrative like that. It's meant just to stop and think, what's going on? This doesn't give us the conclusions, but it gives us the enough of a question that it makes us think, what? wait a minute, what's going on? So we're left wondering at the end of this, what would their new king do? What kind of king is he going to be? How is he going to respond? Can, can this man save, save the people like God said that he would? And it's the right question, isn't it? Saul looks like a powerful king on the outside, but he's got no power on the inside. And, and when you think about what that's meant to point us to it's meant to point us to the fact that we need a king we need a king from the line of judah we need a different kind of king not a fearful king we need a king who's not outwardly impressive but we need a king who is inwardly impressive if you think about it jesus came complete opposite of paul of saul he came meekly And his divine power was clothed in poverty and humility and servanthood and weakness. And he was fearless on the inside and humble on the outside. That's the kind of king we need. Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Saul was empowered by the Holy Spirit. But Saul didn't carry out what he was called to do. He was a king who was unfaithful at the very beginning. And yet Jesus, it says, is faithful in all his ways. He did everything the Father asked of him. Saul couldn't even find his own donkeys. Jesus tells his disciples, Hey, by the way, when you go into the city, go to this place, and you're going to see a a colt, a young donkey tied up, and bring him to me. And when the master says, Hey, what are you doing? You say, The master has need of him. That's the kind of king we want who knows all things the kind of king who directs men's hearts. We want that kind of king. Saul was fearful and timid on the inside and proud on the outside. And Jesus is humble, but the courageous king who faced all of our worst enemies. You may feel like your circumstances are the worst thing you could face. No, your your judgment that you deserve, that you've stored up, Apart from God's grace, the wrath of God that we deserve is far more fierce and lasts more than anything we can imagine if we do not have refuge and deliverance from that oppression. But Jesus came to free us. He came to deliver us. He preached, it says, with amazing authority. He spoke like no other teacher did. And where's Saul? He's hiding after he hears God's word. Jesus did something with God's word and he proclaimed it boldly. Saul, he got God's word and he hid. There's a little bright spot though, you know, it says Saul held his peace after he was reviled And, and that makes us remember that the real king, he was reviled. And it says like a lamb was silent before the slaughterer, so he was silent and did not say anything in response why did jesus do that saul i don't know why he held his peace maybe it was a little bit of character maybe he was afraid actually jesus held his self-defense so that he might die in our defense the end of samuel saul dies a disgraceful death as a coward and he died for for good Jesus died a shameful, disgraceful death. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Why? Because he knew what was coming. He knew he was going to deliver us. He's the God who delivers from slavery. We don't need the kind of king we think we want. We think we need we need the faithful king who truly knows what we need. And he is what we need. Jesus is the one who delivers us and rescues us from the oppressor. He's the one who sets us free. He's the sinless, righteous king who didn't hide but took his place to die for all of us who are unrighteous. He took our judgments so we go free. He didn't run from God. He ran to God's purposes. And the question is, do you know the kind of hope that Jesus brings? Do you know this king? If not, you can know the King. You can experience freedom. And all it takes is saying, God, I admit that I need you, that I, I've sinned against you. I need to turn from my living for myself and, and I've offended you and I can't atone for my own sins. I can't pay my own pay, way. God, I need I need you to pay my way and thank you that Jesus, you did. And I want you to deliver me and He will. As you put your faith and your trust in Him. You know, so Saul, he points us to look for a better king. And that's a good application. He he shows us that we need the kind of king that God provides. He shows us that God ordains and orchestrates all things. He works them for our good. That God has mercy even in the midst of judgment. So we see all those things from Saul. But we also get a little bit of a lesson about what not to do from Saul what not to be like so saul after all was just a human and and when we see god at work like saul saw god at work we have a choice saul had a choice samuel told him you are to see these things happen you're going to see god at work and then you need to respond in obedience when when we see god working when we see god in his word we have a choice we can either run from god or we can run to god in the chapter, you're gonna wonder, okay, what's happening next? And and we we're given a choice. We we're given a kind of crossroads. Saul was kind of this crossroads here. And so the choice for us is okay, who will we choose to follow and serve and believe and put our faith and hope in? What kind of king will we trust? How will we respond to God and his clear, act of working? God is clearly sovereign, and that is a loud and clear overall, over all the decisions, over all the circumstances, over all the working. What is overarching over all those things is God's sovereignty. But in the midst of that, the women went out because they chose to go draw water, and they chose to go up to Samuel, and Saul chose not to respond to God. And yet, although God's sovereign, he holds Saul responsible, and you'll see that in a few chapters later. So God's sovereignty is very clear. But He holds the people responsible for the choice and He holds Saul responsible for the choice. He's he's sovereign, but He doesn't excuse our sin. God works in all things and any fruit that is born in your life is a result of God's work, but God's not to blame. God's not to blame for our failures and sin. God works through those things and He ordains and and He rescues us from our sin. He's merciful, but He doesn't excuse. So what's put before us, how will we respond to God? Will we look to Him in trust? Will we look to Him in faith? Will we see that He's at work? Will we obey His word? Will we look up and have faith in Him? Will we look and turn to the kind of king that He provides? You know, Saul is this tragic character. He points us to a better king, but Saul is also a a lesson for us that let's pursue God's way and let's keep at it. Knowing and trusting that he doesn't hold our failures and weaknesses against us. For we put our faith and our trust in Jesus. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation Oh, maybe that actually applies to the verse that I feel like God gave me in worship earlier. Um, We have a blood of Jesus that's a better covenant. There's no condemnation, so let's have faith and respond. And keep our hearts with all diligence, for from it spring the things of life. Let's pray. God, thanks for your word. God, I pray that you would speak to each and every one of us here. That we would see you working, that we would trust in you, that, Lord... Where we lack faith, God, I pray that you would give faith in you. God, where we lack hope, I pray that we would have hope in you. Lord, where we are more aware of our weakness, failing, and sin, God, I pray that we would be more aware of the blood of your king that's rescued us. God, I pray that we would turn to you in hope and in faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.